welcome to the Time Shifters podcast. I'm your host, Christopher. This podcast takes a fun look at the films of long past, recent past, and the almost present, as well as the events and news surrounding them. I would love to hear from you, and there are several ways to get in touch with the show. Look for the Time Shifters podcast group on Facebook, or you can send us a typed or recorded message to timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and please check us and our fellow podcasters out over on podchaser.com. Please rate and review the show at any of these outlets. All these links can be found on timeshifterspodcast.com. Now let's head to the Timeshifter studio and start the show. Everyone, and welcome to another interview edition of the Time Shifters podcast. This is Christopher here with Tom. And by now, you guys have heard us gush about the film Surrogate. Well, we're not done gushing just yet. We have actually got the co-writer and director of the film on the Skype line with us right now. David Willing, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for coming on. And thank you for your kind words about Surrogate. Uh, it's it's gratifying when people really, really get into the film you've made. So thank you for that. Uh, it, it's completely natural because I, I watched the film and uh, you know I received a, a screener link for it, and then I uh, I forwarded to Tom with the, with a message creepy as f. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if he says that, I have to uh, I got to dig in almost immediately because. He watches even way more film than I ever do. So if it sets off his radar, I gotta. <laughs> uh, okay. He's the barometer. Maybe, yeah, maybe that should be on the poster. Creepy as if. There's <laughs> <laughs> always a, you can always get a second print. Yeah. Like uh, put it on uh, if you do a, a home a, a media release like a DVD like on, on the back you can have like reviews like they always have the reviews or whatever you have creepy as f time shifters podcast <laughs> there you go <laughs> maybe you have to work out a points or a scoring system on that yeah how many how many, how many of f's f? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right well we'll be working on that for next year yep now Anyone that's listened to any of my interviews uh, probably thinks I'm a broken record, but this is always my go-to first question because I have yet to hear a boring answer. I'm always curious how people found their way to filmmaking. So I am certainly curious how that happened for you. Well, no pressure if you've never had a boring answer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this could be the first. Go for it. This could be... <laughs> I'll be most famous for that on your podcast. Um, I fell in love with cinema at a really young age i can remember films from when i was five years old um one in particular called uh, beau geste which was the black and white i think 1934 classic with gary cooper i saw that when i was five years old and it just it blew my mind at the time it's got some incredible twists in the story uh, so i recommend anyone should check that out uh and then i just started watching more and more films and i started to fall in love with horror films. Nightmare on Elm Street and Dawn of the Dead were, were two really big influences that I saw when I was young. And they really made me want to make films. So I, with, you know, with my brother just using a handy cam, started making films in our backyard. Um, a lot of them were horror-based, but as I sort of developed and, and grew, I loved, loved all sorts of cinema. Um, so in high school, I 
I was really lucky the high school I went to had a great filmmaking program. So I initially wanted to do horror makeup, like Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. Uh, but once I picked up the camera, started getting into cinematography and then ultimately writing and, and directing, and things just kind of went on from there. Excellent. That's, it's so interesting. I know this is something Tom wanted to bring up, so I'll just go ahead and toss it to you here, Tom. You actually kind of answered the question I had coming uh, about why did you break into horror? Because I did actually spend a, a bit of time on your website, and I went through and I watched all but one of the, the shorts that you had, and you have such a knack for comedy. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, what, I was curious, uh, well, one, with many of those shorts, uh, particularly like Lunch Date, and the escape hatch, um, when, when you're filming those, the choice to move out of that kind of work into actually more horror-driven stuff, I was curious how that transition came to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you're the first uh, podcast to bring bring that up. Um, what's yeah interesting is I, I loved horror, but it wasn't the only genre I was sure. into. And sort of a lot of the stuff I was writing, though, was darker. It was around uh, horror crime thriller with the, the comedy bit yeah, i did lunch date the short film and it did quite well on australian tv and at some festivals and so what happens as a director is you can get typecast sure. like actors do, you know so so no one who saw saw lunch date contacted me and said gee i got this really gritty crime thriller i want you to <laughs> to direct they, they looked at that and i started getting approached on um on comedy so like I said, I had interest in lots of other genres. I mean, another short film you might have seen on there, uh, Collier Brothers Syndrome, was one of the first shorts I did, and that was on uh, you know, mental illness around obsessive-compulsive hoarding. Um, so I think particularly with Escape Hatch, I, did that, I, I didn't write that. I, I was just a director on it. Mm-hmm. And that I was interested in because it's quite a, a bright, and light and colorful film and that was the opposite of most of what i had done so that was really about you know working in a different um uh not only different sort of genre but even just you know something that had a lighter touch because Mm -hmm. even lunch you know lunch date is a bit more like a a black comedy (laughs) yeah very much in fact uh since you brought up uh collier brother uh, syndrome uh i noticed uh it's actually listed in your projects section. Is there an effort to make that more into a feature? Um, I mean, that's, I wrote a feature version of that a long time ago. Um, okay. And I, it's just very much been on the back burner. The, the sad reality of writing feature films is most will never get made. Um, <laughs> this, this is true. And, <laughs> yeah. It was a project that was, was really close to my heart, but I, um, yeah, I might go back to it at a point. What you know, what's changed a lot when I did Collie Brothers, I think it was, was two thousand and four. Um, hoarding was very much like uh, very esoteric. There wasn't much on that. And now, you know, there's all these different reality TV shows mm-hmm. around hoarding and, and it it exploded and uh, yeah, it's like if that project had it taken off fifteen years ago, we would have been ahead of the curve. Um, but on to how I ended up in horror um, yeah. is that, uh, yeah, I so said that that was a genre that I loved and I I just, you know, got dragged back, you know, towards that because I wanted to do one. Um, and 
you know, now I'll probably just get horror offers instead of others. <laughs> <laughs> time, time to get typecast. At least it's in one yeah. of the ones you really love. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it is said it's a genre I, I do love, and it's a great audience to be making films for. Um, and yeah, that's the reality. As I said, I, you know, Dawn of the Dead was a huge influence, and, you know, most of George Romero's career, he at times when he tried to break out of horror, he just he couldn't because um, that's what. <laughs> what they saw him as so no matter what what he does after everyone sits there and goes so when's the blood start yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> one of the other short films we definitely wanted to talk about before we we move on is your film walking with the mercy ah yes you watched that yeah. i did yes. watch that 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 was an amazing 40 minutes that i highly recommend everyone check out uh you kind of explained why you do it in the film but there's still that question, why? <laughs> <laughs> the question is, how did you get turned on to doing the Mercy and, and that area of Ethiopia? Yeah, so for those who haven't um, seen or listened to the podcast, it's a, essentially it's an extreme hiking adventure documentary, which mm -hmm. is mostly in remote Ethiopia. Uh, but I ended up going across i think it's set on four continents as i was my making my way to ethiopia and that was really my other passion all through my life has been rock climbing and hiking and outdoor adventures so i actually at one stage was looking at going to ethiopia to rock climb is a lot of it's a very mountainous country mm. particularly in the north and um i couldn't make that trip happen and then i decided when i heard about this very remote omo valley which is the most essentially the most remote tribal uh, region of Africa that's left. I thought, oh, I'll go and check that out. And, it, yeah, I haven't watched it back for a long time, but there are moments when I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, from Chris's point of view, it was part horror for him. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm glad it wasn't a documentary about rock climbing because the first, like, 10, 15 minutes of that film while you're in the Dolomite Mountains is a whole lot of nope for me. <laughs> you don't like the the height thing, Chris? I I love heights. They don't like me. Uh, the older <laughs> I get, the less I can handle them. I can't even watch things on television when there's where, where there's a sharp edge drop off. My stomach drops out. Yeah, it's it's incredible what height does to people, or you know, being near the edge. And I also my side job for a while was a rock climbing instructor, and seeing how that affects affects people um yeah it, it's a very baseline kind of core fear that we have um but again i'm glad that that had that effect on you so <laughs> yeah, i don't know what it is when i was younger i was always the one climbing the trees and rocks or whatever i could find but yeah as i've gotten older it's just if, if there's not a guardrail between me and the drop <laughs> yeah well maybe that's maybe almost the theme of um Walking with the mercy, there is no guardrail. I mean, for me, it was that going into an area where I know, you know, I didn't speak any of the language, but I had no idea really about anything down there. Like, it was really just a lot of hope and relying on, um, uh, not really relying on a lot, just kind of hoping and launching into that world. So that was a more scarier part to me than, than the mountain climbing. No, absolutely. I was just telling Tom before we recorded, I, I was watching the film and I'm watching you, you know, go through these, just the, the open fields and there's nothing around. 
And I'm thinking, my God, if something actually happened to you, this guy is dead. Because <laughs> you know, there's not a hospital. There's not an ambulance that is going to come save him. No one's going to come chopper in or anything. You look like you were pretty much cut off from the rest of the world. Yeah, very much so. And it's some moments I really felt that um, that isolation and exposure. Um, and, yeah, you're just hoping something doesn't happen. Because I think... <laughs> At one stage, I was probably four days' walk from the nearest town, and that town is quite small. It's it's the biggest town in that area, but that's relative to what you get there. You know, there's no functioning hospital. So I was hoping um, that I, nothing serious would happen, and as you see at the end, I do get bitten by something. Great. <laughs> Before you connected, we were having a bit of fun because uh, I, I just love when you just start going off – what just got me? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the moment when I was like, ooh, this could get really, this could get serious. And um, uh, But I think I like, what also was appealing about that is, you know, when you're going into those areas that are out of your comfort zone, you are seeing and experiencing things that you wouldn't otherwise. And I think to me, one of the parts that was most enjoyable about it is I know that I've just walked in some places that very few humans have ever been. Um, I mean, these are even uh, the uh, mercy who live there uh, and the surround, the surrounding tribes would have never been there because of their, the, the territorial barriers. Um, so I went through a lot, but it's, it was that unique experience was worth it all. Well, and what I was noting, uh, even watching it is, I mean, it was shot. It was so well shot, so well put together. Um, it, it had that full feel of like any sort of nature docu series kind of thing. It was very. It just drew you in. It was a very compelling piece. So, and it looked amazing. It's beautiful country. No matter. I mean, yes, it looks like it's incredibly dangerous to be out there by yourself, but it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it was an incredible time and incredible country to visit. And the other countries along the way, you know, the, the section of the documentary on training in uh, northern Lebanon and, and places like that were all, you know, it was just fascinating in different places. And, it, you know, I must say that the Omo Valley and the, the Mercy in Ethiopia is, is really not representative of what the country is like. Um, I, I almost wanted to put a scene in that, once I'd left the Omo Valley, it's two days later, I'm in a nightclub in the main city. <laughs> um, and, and that was really surreal because there was a moment when I was, um, I was drinking a beer in this nightclub and I was like, hang on, did, was I just down in this really remote tribal area or did I just dream all of that? Um, when I was shooting stuff, I wasn't sure what, even if I was going to do a documentary on it or how I was going to use that that footage and probably still the hardest bit at the time ultimately is that I'm in front of the camera for it and I'm used to being behind. And when we had a world premiere screening of it, along with some other films, I remember, you know, for the first time just thinking, Oh my God, it's like my head in close up. on a <laughs> screen. Uh, And that was probably the most difficult part of the whole film. <laughs> Yeah, I struggle that with a bit. Uh, I'm glad Chris does all of our editing and posting because uh, I, I don't care for listening to myself much. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, let's move on to uh, Sarah again, unless you had anything else, Tom, you wanted to talk about. No, um, I, I, well, I could talk about everything because uh, even going through the projects list, I'm like hoping, oh, I want to see that. Oh, I want to see that. So I want these things to be real, but I know how it all works. Well, hopefully too, the so. surrogate will be the launching pad and you get some of these other projects off the ground. So you've already answered got a, a lot of my uh, first question about the decision to do horror and everything. So I wanted to jump in. The, the casting of a film is always like incredibly important. Yeah. Um, I think a, a good casting can make or break, even if, if you've got the best story, if you don't cast the right person, they can't project that story as well. Your star, yeah. uh, Kesti Marassi, is that, am I saying that right? Uh, Marassi, yeah. Marassi was a great choice in my opinion. And, and like I mentioned in the, in the review, she comes across as a very typical kind of working mother. And so it really makes it easy to kind of pull the audience in and for the audience to get pulled along as she's thrown into that impossible situation. Yeah, she's great in the film. She was very, um, very dedicated to the role and worked, worked really hard. And I'd met, you know, with a bunch of actresses when we were, we were casting it. And she, you know, I knew her, well, you know, everyone knows her from Wolf Creek internationally. Um, so, you know, I mean, she's most famous for the, for the woman sitting in the middle of the road in the outback covered in blood uh, on the Wolf Creek poster. But since then, she's done a quite a, a couple of films and a lot of TV. She was just finishing up on a soap opera in Australia called Home and Away. Uh, and so someone had told me that she was looking to do another film and particularly a horror. Uh, so I sent her the screenplay and we had a, a Zoom meeting because she lived interstate at the time. And... Then she sent me a self tape of a couple of scenes, and I was just like, "Wow, she's going to be she's going to be great for the role." Um, and yeah, it's an incredible performance. We had a very good rehearsal period. We had a long time to discuss the screenplay and uh, looked at lots of aspects with her costume. We spent a lot of time about how her costume would define her character. And um, uh, you know, when we got into production, she's just. You know, very committed and very dedicated and, you know, very professional, her approach to doing the work. And it, it really pays off on screen because it's a pretty special performance. Oh, absolutely. Especially because, I mean, there are moments in this film where it is only her. I mean, she has to carry this film. Uh, and certainly uh, the more horrific moments are all pretty much focused on her. And she has to carry all that. And uh, she, yeah, she did a fantastic job in, the, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge variation in emotions. I mean, she almost goes through every emotion you could imagine in the story, and but also those physical requirements. And what I realized when we're shooting is just how good she is as a physical actress. So not just the emotional part, um, how she kind of plays out scenes physically um, was, uh, you know, really impressive. And that, that's a whole different skill in itself. Some actors, it's, their strength is more line delivery. Um, and yeah, she has to shoulder, she's in all, but I think it's four scenes in the film. Um, and again, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't do that again. Uh, only in that we got lucky that she wasn't sick or off for any days. Um, you know, because it's like, she couldn't be good on, on five or six days of the shoot. She needed to be good every day. And that's really demanding. Um, and we're, you know, we're lucky that she was able to to do that but um it, yeah my advice would be not to do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, if your lead, when they're that integral to the to the film, if they would uh, get the flu or something and, you know, be down for a couple of days, you can't go, oh, OK, well, we'll go shoot this person's scenes instead because they need to be there. <laughs> Yeah, and especially if you've got a you know a film with a much bigger schedule, there are ways you know you can work around that a little bit. Um, you know, thinking I was watching Apocalypse Now the other day again, you know, and Martin <laughs> Sheen after he has his heart attack, and they had to get his his brother as a stand in, and they were able to shoot little bits and pieces around, uh, but their schedule was bigger. Um, so yeah, it was. So we kind of got lucky, but it would be um, it is it is a bit of a risk. What was the schedule for Surrogate? I didn't think about that. How how long did you work on uh, filming it? It was crazy. It was a, a nineteen day shoot. Really? Yeah, it was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's a marathon shoot. We did some cra- like really long days. It was a couple of fifteen hour days in there, um, and we did a, a pickup day after the fact. Uh, as you know, we missed actually just three shots and. You know, a documentary is being made on the making of the film, and as tight as that schedule was, we only missed three shots, and that's because the sun came up on the last day of the shoot. We're, we're doing a night shoot. We're actually shooting the scenes at the petrol station early on. Yeah, and it hit a it hit a point where the sun came up, and we just were like, "It's a night scene, and it's pure daylight. We can't." <laughs> oh Which come on! Really- it's never stopped some horror movies from like the <laughs> <laughs> the day for nights. That's true. I was watching something the other day, and from shot to shot, it was going between night and day, and I was like, oh, that's that's how you get around it. Just totally ignore that fact. But, <laughs> <laughs> Just but take the, our word. It's night. <laughs> <laughs> we actually did, when you watch the film, some of those shots, it is daylight. You can't tell, but it, it hit a point when we needed to be outside. And, um, yeah, and it, it was a bit of a concern as to will the scenes work, and we went back and did a pickup night uh, to get some additional shots, but... Yeah, the schedule was 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 really tight. Insane to me. Nineteen days to try to put together an actual feature film. Jane Badler, who we here in yeah. the U.S. best know her for her role as Diana in the classic sci-fi miniseries V. Uh, I didn't realize yes. that she actually uh, kind of migrated to Australia. She and lived there now and continued acting and everything. So that was very cool. Uh, what was the situation that she happened to be one of the ones? What did she just? You needed a part and she auditioned or did you uh, have some connection with her? Yeah. So Jane's been, I think she's been living in Melbourne for maybe 20 or more years. Um, yeah. And yeah, she's most famous. For, is it biting a rat's head off or something? In <laughs> swallowing um, a guinea pig. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. Swallowing a guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she, <laughs> how she got involved in the, the project, Confer Gabo was uh, our executive producer on the film. So he's an he's a, a Indonesian businessman who's based in Melbourne as well. And he's on the arts board for the Victorian College of the Arts, which is one of our main arts schools. And she's also on, on that board. And they were at a meeting one night and he was, he was like, oh, it's Jane Badler. And so he said to her, I'm producing this film. Do you want to read the screenplay? And so she read it. Uh, she really liked it, and then we organised for to meet for a coffee in a cafe in Melbourne. And I actually hadn't seen V growing up, um, so uh, you know I didn't know the kind of roles that she played. But so we met for a coffee, and she's she's really lovely. And I thought it'd be fun to then cast her as 
as the Lauren Barmer, who she plays, um, which is a totally different personality to what, what she is in real life. Um, and it was one of the, there was a couple of roles that we actually didn't audition her. So I just, when I should work for the role um, and she's very enthusiastic to play, to play that role. Though it was quite challenging because it's a very different type of character to what she's previously played. Um, and yeah, when she came aboard, she was, she was great to work with as well. Very, very committed and very dedicated to um, to doing as the best job she could. I, I really loved her character because, like I was telling Tom in the in the review, in any other story, you know, she would be looked upon as the hero. You know, she's trying to do her job and she's trying to catch this woman in, in, in a lie because she thinks this woman has done something to a, to a child. You know, possibly she's sort of in this story is kind of the villain, but she's a villain with the best intentions. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm really glad you picked up on that uh, because, you know, it's interesting hearing reviews and stuff on it. And it, she's a character that some people love to hate. Um, <laughs> and th- there was really two components to that. When we're writing it, uh, we're aware that in, in horror films, uh, particularly when you're dealing with monster type characters is you need a grounded antagonist as well. So the classic example in Alien, you know, it's not just the alien that's um, stalking and killing them on the ship. It's also that you've got essentially, you know, the android who's sabotaging internally. And I was watching Jaws again last week, and <laughs> even though you've got the shark, what's great when you get on that boat is it's, it's a class warfare that's going on mm-hmm. between, between these characters. So we wanted to look for a grounded antagonist as well and so that's why we wrote that character and in terms of her the direction i gave her is exactly what you're you're talking about um that it's like you're like you're not the bad person in this the audience i didn't say this to jane that the audience will think that but what i was saying is that it's from your point of view when you work in child welfare most things you see are terrible and most parents are lying to you. You know, they don't just go, oh, yeah, here, this is what the abuse that's going on. Um, (laughs) So I said from your point of view is you care about children um, and the welfare of children is what interests you the most. And so that gave her character that drive to work off. I think her character's coming from a sincere point of view. Um, It's just that the audience knows that... um, she's wrong <laughs> well yeah we're, we're in on the the supernatural element of this but to the world around that's not real yeah i said imagine every scenario like that they uh you know the parent just says to the uh, dhs or i'm not even sure what you call it in america but here with you know department of human certain family mm-hmm. services yeah. um yeah if they say to them oh, no, all these bruises, it's not that. It's it's related to, to something else. And then they go, oh, okay, we believe you. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> well, especially if the something else is, yeah, there's this demon child that's haunting us. Uh, yeah, that, that totally yeah. gets bought. Yes. <laughs> Completely understandable. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, I mean, that's one of the, the great functions in Exorcist, which is one of mine and Beth's, who I co-wrote the film with our favorite films. And, uh, you know, uh, Half of that film is her trying to convince others of what's happening. But what mm-hmm. she's suggesting is so absurd or out there or extreme that the logical thing is to go, you know, that a daughter's just 
has mental illness as opposed to is possessed by the devil itself. Actually, I wanted to get into, uh, and since you've already mentioned The Exorcist, uh, one of the things we noted through our own uh, um, review of the film is there seemed to be a lot of influences from from other things. So uh, we were kind of hoping you could take us through some of uh, the things that influenced this film from your perspective. Um, yeah, it's in- influence is interesting how it, which bit it seeps through. Um, there's certain things that will inspire, but uh, it's sort of cases of going, oh, remember the shot from that film? Now I'm going to set that up exactly uh, and copy that. Though some filmmakers do it. And it's, yeah, what's interesting with the influence, I mean, there's some films that uh, the influence is a lot more direct. So we really like Korean and Japanese horror. Um, so, you know, Ring... You know, and a few, you know, reviews are bringing up uh, Ring. And to me, it's almost impossible to watch a ghost horror post Ring where you can't see some of those influences. Sure. You know, it, it did to, to paranormal horror what Chinatown did to detective thrillers. You know, that influences. Yeah. It's, it's such a big shadow that gets cast. Um, and it's a magnificent film, so you can't help but um, be inspired by it. And uh, Grudge was another one The the uh, Japanese ju- film Juon. Um, mm-hmm. And another, a Korean one, I, I, I can't remember the direct translation, but it's something like Dear Friend, uh, which was a late late 90s uh, paranormal horror, which uh, we were really influenced by. And then if it's getting into some broader stuff, people might know The Others with Nicole Kidman. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, The Others and The Orphanage. Have you seen that? A Spanish, Spanish horror film. No, I have not. Ah, oh, check that out. Um, so it's the orphanage. All of your listeners should, should check it out. It's like the others, it's very good storytelling and filmmaking rather than just let's set up a scenario and have lots of jump scares. Oh, so we're really, you know, we're really inspired by uh, that. And I mean, yeah, Exorcist. And there's other ones I said that I love, but they don't. I don't think they come through in the film. Uh, maybe, you know, I said I'm a big George Romero fan and Dario Argento it was a huge, huge influence. Not that, that that doesn't, to me, show up really in, in Surrogate, except maybe he sort of taught me when you watch Argento's films is, you know, how you use the camera as a character in telling the story. So it probably informed it, but, you know, it doesn't, so it doesn't feel like Tenebrae or Suspiria or anything like that. You could pick up on at least that that camera as the character, particularly in the scene uh, with the uh, exorcist girl, mm. the the one that sat with the mirrors. Uh, you just going to bring that scene. Yeah, up. that yep. scene is highly effective in the way that the camera moves and sees things without actually showing you. You leave it all in the head. Uh, as to what's actually happening and what this girl is seeing. Another probably influence that just really, I think, comes through overall is Hitchcock. Again, it's like since Hitchcock, there's the influence you see everywhere uh, in his stuff. And I, I certainly loved his films growing up. And I think, yeah, that has a sort of a Hitchcock element to that scene as well. And, I mean, yeah, the seance was really, that is all about, how you're just slowly building up that tension and it's really about the journey across the scene rather than what the 
specific reveal will be like it's that whole how we build it up build it up mm-hmm. and we did that was one of the scenes we had a lot of time to shoot as in we had a full day uh, with the schedule we some days we had to shoot three major scenes so it was a bit of a luxury uh, to shoot it but it's still a seven minute scene so it was a crazy day and it was one of those scenes that I saw very very clearly on how to shoot how to shoot it and what I wanted from it and it's also, I think, a testament to the collaboration on the film because there's a, a couple of other shots that Ben Luck, the cinematographer, suggested in the scene and they just took it up to that next level. It really complemented what we were, you know, what we're trying to do with it. Um, so it uses some dolly shots. We don't use a lot of dolly shots in the film on purpose. But there's a couple of ones. I mean, it, the, the one we're talking about when it, it's pushing in on the girl as yeah. she starts singing and chanting that was ben's idea and i just thought it was a magnificent uh, addition to the scene the whole moment with uh, ava i think the character's name is with the mirrors in that in that room i think is probably one of the most tense scenes in the entire film for me <laughs> i was it was literally kind of edge of your seat where i'm just waiting and you know you got the mirrors and so you're you're looking at the mirrors. You're waiting for something to show up in the mirrors. Is something going to be in this mirror? What about this time? How about this time? And yeah, it just keeps you on edge through that. You said it's only seven minutes, but I feel like it, it's seven minutes, but it's like seven minute sprint to me because I feel like you're out of breath by the time you're done with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's certainly not outstaying. It's welcome. And it, um, yeah, that tension also, what with the use of the mirrors really, once I hit onto this idea about really forcing the audience's perspective, so, you know, making them look where they don't want to look or, you know, the camera drags across and we're taking, your, you know, the audience's eyes with them. And what was great when we were in the cinemas, uh, so it screened at a couple of cinemas in Melbourne, Australia, and it was great when that scene would start because you could see people just sliding into their seat or starting to hide their head. <laughs> And it just was this, like, where is it coming from? Where's where's the hit going to come from? And Yes. Yeah. Just, you know, it's like taking Chris to the edge of uh, a height. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When's he going to fall? <laughs> well, that's the bit. And then suddenly it's like, ah, there's a drop behind as well. And there's one on the left. And right. It's, um, it, yeah. And you don't know how, like, you know, you have it conceptually and abstract in your mind how you want it to work on the audience and you don't know if things are going to work or not. And that's just the case with any film, mm. you know, no matter what you're doing, you don't know if it's going to work. You know, when, when you do a comedy, you don't know if people are going to laugh. The good thing with comedy, it's very immediate. When you, you know, when I've done comedy and you sit in the audience and you, you're on the edge of your seat because a, a joke's coming up and then you go, Oh, they laugh. Great. That works. <laughs> uh, or if they didn't, when I directed a uh, Barefoot in the Park, which is a great um, Neil Simon comedy, when I directed a stage version of that, what was really interesting is on one night the audience would laugh at one bit and the next night they wouldn't. And you kind of go, oh, was that? what was the variation on that? Um, and horror is the same. It's very immediate when you're in the audience. So we could really tell that scene scene was working. It just The audience just seemed to kind of clam up and close in on itself. That's awesome. I'm jealous of people who've got to see this like in a theater setting, you know, with a large group. Because horror films, especially ones that are kind of rely on the suspense of the story and not just the uh, 
oh, gore for gore sakes, which is what a lot of horror is uh, nowadays. Uh, there, there, there is that whole you know kind of gestalt thing going on because you, you're picking up the vibes from everyone else when those tense scenes happen and everything, and I, I, I miss that. Mm. For sure, I think it's an optimal setting for horror, and it's you know the other the other tough bit with horror is you know that not everyone is going to find it scary. Right. You know, there's, there's no what that is the tough bit, but no, there's no one film where everyone goes that scared. Um, but mm-hmm. when you're in a cinema, you, you do get a better shot at that if you've got you know not just a dark auditorium, but if you, yeah if you're picking up off other people's reactions. And one of the nights that really stands out when we're screening it at one of the cinemas myself and the Mark Byers who composed the music, who did an extraordinary job with that. We were both there and you know, we'd seen it with a bunch of audiences. And that one was stand out as like that was the best night because it was it wasn't the biggest audience. It was still a big audience, but the just the vibes in there. There was uh Tasha who plays the nine year old girl, her sister and her friends were there and they're all sort of sixteen or seventeen and um, as it was starting to ramp up, a few of them were like nervous laughing or, oh my God, and, and jumping. And, and uh, a couple in front of me, I could just see that like they're starting to like actually hold each other's heads and arms and stuff. And, um, and it was like the audio was the best in the cinema and the picture looked the best. And it was just everyone feeding off it and the tension was, was you know, it was, it was really great to sit through that. Real quick, you mentioned. Uh, uh... Tasha, who played the the young daughter, and then um, the the other young girl. You had two child actors in in the film. Just to jump back into the cast a little bit, uh, again, the wrong actor in the wrong in the in the part can can damage the film. Uh, you you are able to get two really good child actors, which is a feat in and of itself because <laughs> uh, they did fantastic. Particularly uh, a, um, young Ellie Stewart, who played Ava, who had to be the the medium. Or the the you know the one holding the seance or whatever, uh, remarkable work. Yeah, I mean we actually had three nine-year-old actresses in it, so I know there's one that we've sort of been hiding a bit from because of our marketing strategy. Yeah, before this film, I'd never directed child actors before, so I was a bit. Oh wow! Um, on the first day of auditions, I sent Beth a message, and I'm like, "How did we end up writing three nine-year-olds into a script?" Like, <laughs> like it seemed obvious. <laughs> Uh, after that fact, um, that this could be a problem. And, you know, we knew they really had to be sort of seven to ten years old. And we auditioned a lot of children. We saw a lot, um, pretty much every child actor in Melbourne. And some of them, um, Ali Tevlis, who's in the film, she came through on the first day and was really good. Um, and she actually auditioned. All the girls auditioned for all the three roles in the film. So that was interesting, mixing and matching them and they all ended up getting the one they wanted. Um, and Taisha, when I saw her, you know, she sent uh, a self-tape of a couple of scenes. And I was like, I could really see her potential in the role and um, the raw talent that she had. But, you know, what was challenging with all of them is they're all quite big roles, either the amount of screen time or what's what's required. And, and Taisha, there's lots of, physical and emotional yeah, stuff yeah. that she had to deal with. And um, it was, uh, yeah, you know, we did a lot of work in, in rehearsal. The, uh, the crew was really good with the kids and the, the adult actors who were working opposite, uh, you know, really worked with them to help them through that. And 
Yeah, they're, they're really impressive performances, but it is it is stressful beforehand because, yeah, you suddenly go, oh, if they're off for a day or so, um, then the scenes aren't going to work. And, yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm really proud of the performances they all put in and how dedicated they were to the work as well. Actually, uh, I, I want to touch on, uh, you, you mentioned some of the, the physicality and some of the really emotional uh this film had a lot of um, what I, I even referred to in our rever- in our review as a possible trigger kind of, kind of things because the the kind of uh, horror that th- this was involved things that would just wreck a family. Um, so I was curious what the tension was like uh, on set shooting some of these really personal tragic kind of things yeah it certainly hits lots of different emotions uh as well as the physical stuff going on and i should say actually though at the the premiere someone did pass out oh my god Um, oh wow and that should be on the poster (laughs) yeah (laughs) well there was going to be two things we actually outsold batman at the cinema as well the batman was on at the same time so we're almost like which which one do we put on the poster um wow we also we also did outsell um, Morbius, but then I found out after the fact that wasn't. <laughs> That's not really. A, I'm sorry, but that wasn't really a stat. <laughs> yeah. And in fairness, I should say it was Batman. I think it was in its third or fourth week. We certainly didn't uh, outshoot its opening Doesn't weekend. Matter. But you outpaced them. <laughs> it was cool. Yeah, the cinema contacted us and they said, uh, "You know, this is our highest selling film this week." And I just sort of said, "Oh, what second to the Batman?" I said, "No, I outsold that." I was like, wow. <laughs> so we should have that on the poster. Uh, and the passing out bit, I, I said to the makeup artist, uh, you know, I said, you won't get a better compliment for your work um, than yeah. that moment. And that was really, don't want to get into to too many spoilers, but you can see it in the trailer. Sure. There's a, a, a scene when Kesty's in hospital and there's a bit of, um, it's quite a bit of blood going on. And it's, it's mm-hmm. I think there's only really three blood scenes in the film. It's certainly not a, a gore horror. Um, yeah. But, the scenes preceding how Natalie ends up in hospital in particular is what, what set this, this woman off who got up to leave and collapsed. Um, hmm. Which, uh, yeah, again, I thought it was just the crew joking around, but it turned out to be the case um, that had happened. And the emotional stuff on set was really, I mean, the horror stuff with the children is not a problem. Like, first of all, they love when the fake blood comes out. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, that's that's really fun. And the second part is, is it's quite bright on set and there's lots of cast and crew, so it's actually how you create the fear becomes more the problem. Um, f- from an emotional content of the film, I just gave the screenplay to to the parents and I just said, read that first, because uh, the girls had only seen the scenes they were auditioning for. Um, you know, And then I met with them and you know, I sort of said, it's up to you you're the parents, you decide what you want to tell them is going on or what isn't happening with their character. Uh, Because it's dealing with things like death and loss and they were nine years old, I didn't know what their experience of that was to that point. Um, Right. You know, so it was really about, you know, the parents discussing that with them and what they chose to to talk about those those aspects. Um, Then when it got on set, it's really, you know, with, with Taisha and, uh, Kesty, they've got a lot of really big emotional scenes. Um, 
and you know, really the the rehearsal process was about getting those two to connect and trust each other um, because they were going to be in those scenes together. Um, and, you know, so we worked on those sorts of things and, uh, yeah. And then when you get on set, it's just about how you, how you kind of balance those things out and make them work where it's not too traumatic, but, but ultimately you need the scene to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just how you, um, how you go about that, you know, how, how you get your actors emotional. I mean, back in the day with, sure. the, with children, that would be the joke. It's just, you know, you, you prick their toes with pins to make them cry. Um, <laughs> I wasn't familiar with that trick. <laughs> no, I mean, that's gone back a long time ago, but it was, uh, I was actually watching recently uh, the great Russian film Battleship Potemkin and there's the famous Odessa uh, scene, the Odessa Steps sequence and there's a few shots where they're just trampling on children. I'm like, oh, that was, you know, 100 years ago. It's like if we need a shot of a child being trampled, we'll just trample them. <laughs> trample children. Yeah, so now, <laughs> you know, we have to approach it a lot more ethically. Um, so we didn't have to use any pins or anything like that um, with the children. And so once once they're in the scene, they're really bouncing off the, the adults, um, you know, and their emotion as well. A fantastic cast all around. All around, they, I think they all did an incredible job, and it's such a great film. And at the time that everyone hears this, it should be available here in the states now. Uh, it was uh, originally going to come out a little earlier on Amazon, but it got delayed. So I think September sixteenth was is the uh, was the premiere date for uh, here in the U.S. on Amazon. I strongly recommend that people go and check it out, and if it costs a couple bucks pay the couple bucks so you don't get any ads or anything in the middle of it. You do not want ads to break up this film. I mean, this film is one that really relies on you paying attention and not having your attention broken. Yeah. It's, it's actually available. It's out on Amazon right now as we speak. Um, and it will be on Google play and to be on the 16th. Um, but yeah, as you said, with the, the, the concentration bit, it's quite a layered story. And what's been really good is a few people came back and watched it a second time at the cinema and were picking up on lots of these other other details in the film because quite a lot's going on or, or people not realising what's going on. And that's what I think we're really, you know, proud with the screenplay is that even the most random event in the film is not random. So, and it's a few other little bits and pieces. You know, we get some emails from people who have picked up on details in the film, which is good, but there's been some other ones that no one's picked up or told us about yet, so we're hoping they get they get unearthed on multiple viewings as well. Oh, excellent. Now it makes me want to go back and watch. I like it. You've sold me. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, unless you have anything else, we should probably let David get on with his day. Uh, the only thing I would, uh, first off, congratulations and thank you. Uh, excellent film um do you have anything uh on the horizon that we should know of because uh i definitely want to look at more of your work uh in the future i'm very much been caught up in the post-production marketing phase for nearly a year on surrogate but i started back writing other projects because uh we we came up with you know several ideas when we're brainstorming what became surrogate so uh back writing those and writing a few other things and we'll just see what happens over the next couple of months, what emerges from, from surrogate, uh, from a director point of view, you know, I've directed other people's screenplays in the past and, you know, 
hopefully a good project might come along or one of the mm. other ones that we're, we're writing will happen happen uh, hopefully fairly soon because it's a long process to get a feature film made. Absolutely. But but no, thank, thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work. Yeah, thank you. I said I'm really glad you guys enjoyed the film so much. It's um, Yes. It's always good having, you know, passionate film uh, film fanatics. Nope, I, I enjoyed it. I know and everyone that uh, saw the review was like, really jones in the go and watch the film it was like you guys sold this hard i'm like well it's worth it <laughs> there's a reason <laughs> no but uh yeah congratulations i mean this is your first feature film and i think you just hit it right out of the park um i i'm i'm expecting great things in the future for you and uh <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna look like as tom said i'll be looking forward to it thank you yeah well i'll when the next thing happens i'll definitely come back on a pot and we'll do another podcast about that oh absolutely we'll definitely have you back on as often as you like <laughs> yeah david thank you very much for taking some time out of your morning to uh, to speak with us this actually works really well because uh, tom and i uh our regular show all this year has been focusing on time travel and talking to you in australia we're actually speaking to you in our future so it <laughs> it works yeah i've got um i know what's going to happen in your day tomorrow so yeah. No spoilers. <laughs> no, again, thank you very much for taking time to talk with us. We really appreciated it. Uh, we really enjoyed the film. We strongly recommend people go and check it out. Um, yes, it is available on Amazon now. It will be on Google uh, TV or Google Play, whatever it is. And I do believe, like I said, I think it's going to be on Tubi, but that is ad-supported. That is not the way to watch the film. Just if you have to, I guess, but really try not to. <laughs> David, thanks very much. Have a good, an excellent day. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.